Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Listeners often ask why I don't put myself on the receiving end of The Shift. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I did just that, when I was interviewed about menopause, misogyny, the HRT lottery, and all things midlife by my friend Jennifer Crichton, creator of The Flock at Edinburgh Wellbeing Festival. As you will hear, It's not the highest quality, as it was recorded in an auditorium with a live audience, but I hope it gives you a taster of what the shift live could be like and watch this space for more on that. And if you enjoy this bonus episode, why not sign up to the shift newsletter for features about everything from menopause and midlife to money, relationships, sex, celebrities, you name it. Plus, you'll get first dibs on exclusive podcasts, transcripts of your favourite episodes, book recommendations and loads more. Find out more and sign up at steady.media forward slash the shift. Just before we get into it, let's start with take me back to, to when you wrote the book and why you felt there was a need for it, because it's safe to say we've come a long way in the conversation about menopause since then. Yeah, it's really, I have to just say, I'm quite, I've just looked down and I realised that I've got really bad socks on, so I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me, of course, that you'd all be looking at my yeah, yeah. Um Anyway, aside from that, um, I had I am fifty five now, and I went into what I learned with hindsight was menopause at about forty six. I didn't know that that was menopause. I was, I think, a lot of women really, really. Um, ill-informed about what perimenopause looked like. At that point, I just thought it was all hot flushes and no periods. Um, and it wasn't like that for me at all, certainly not to begin with. It was, I had you know, really dramatic mental health symptoms. Um, and it took me at least two years to realise what was happening to me. I took, I, did, I couldn't find... Um, I'm not like a big joiner in her, to be said, so I'm not the person who's going to join a Facebook group. But I couldn't find very much information. I asked my friends, and because I was 
quite young to go into menopause, not extremely young. I mean, we might, I might make Jen tell you about her experience in a minute. She's really young. Um, I just didn't, I didn't know what was happening to me and I felt really isolated and lonely. And so when um, I decided to, I'm trying to think, I started writing the book probably, hang on, it was published two years ago, three years ago, probably around about 50 when I was coming out of it, but still feeling a bit crap. Um, because Mainly just because I thought, if I'm, I'm a journalist, you know, I've worked in women's magazines for most of my adult life, and, you know, I had access to a health editor who knew her stuff, and I didn't know what was happening to me, and I had met doctors and nurses who didn't know what was happening to them. So what, you know, what hope is there for the average woman who wakes up one morning, and it can really happen like this. I mean, so, uh, it's important to say that a lot of people go into menopause, sail through it, come out the other side, and it's all great. I hate them, but, you know, you know, I don't want to say that everybody has a bad time, but I did have a bad time. And so firstly, I was angry. I was, and I think that anybody who's read the book already will know that little bits of it are a bit angry. Um, okay, I'm not angry. But also, I just really didn't want um, other women to have the experience that I had had of that kind of going into this not knowing what the hell was happening to them. And I, I honestly thought that I was losing it from a, a, in a mental health perspective. I lost my confidence. I suffered really chronic anxiety. I've suffered from anxiety before, but really chronic anxiety, insomnia, panic <clears throat> attacks. And that is not uncommon. It's, it's quite common. I mean, I, when I was researching the book and, and subsequently recording the podcast, I've spoken to a large minority of women who thought they had early onset Alzheimer's. You know, that, that is not an uncommon symptom. So, you know, I wanted to talk about that. But also, I had been working with a bunch of young women when I was going through this. I was easily the oldest person in the office. Um, and I watched the way that they behaved. And I know that the Daily Mail would call that way of behaving entitled but I would just call it informed and knowing your rights. And I just looked at them and thought, there is no way that they are going to go into their mid-late 40s, 50, and just accept that their life has turned to shit. They've lost their identity. That you know, you can see the way you're treated differently at work and your Facebook feed is full of caftans. There's no way that those women are going to put up with that. And so really, why should we? Why should we wait? For millennial women to protest about this, let's protest about it now. And I know this is a really long answer, but I'm nearly finished. <laughs> you just like nod a bit. Um, and then my, I wrote a proposal, huge. It was like the third of the book. And what happened? So this would have been three and a half, four years ago. And my agent, who was a young woman who absolutely loved the book and got it. Um, she sent the proposal out and she was like, we're going to be beating people off with a stick. This is absolutely brilliant. And what happened, with the exception of three publishers, was female editors, older female editors, not the younger ones, said, I absolutely love this, we're going to put in an offer. And then with the exception of three, they all came back and said, the sales director doesn't know who will buy it. 
for, as somebody I was speaking to on Zoom yesterday who's got a menopause business in the States, said, if one more VC asks me, what's the total addressable market, I'm going to kill them. You know, 51% of the population are going to experience this. And the male sales director doesn't see that there's a market for this book. Obviously, that's changed now. In the, two, the book was published nearly two years ago. And the conversation kind of exploded then, really. Since then, you know, Davina's made two documentaries. There are loads of new menopause books on the market. Um, and ironically, somebody phoned me up and said, do you feel like writing a menopause book? And I was like, uh, done that already. But, you know, clearly I'm not paying attention. No, did that answer your question? I think it did. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we're seeing now, as you said, this, this huge explosion. And it's hard to say... I mean, you don't know what you don't know. But how much were you aware of the fact that this wasn't something you were prepared for until it came and hit you around the head with a baseball bat? Well, I I simply didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. I thought I was losing it. I just started a business and I assumed that I was incapable of running a business. Um, I think it is that you don't know what you don't know thing, but also... I hands up, I was guilty of being a younger woman who didn't want to know. I also edited a magazine where the advertisers didn't like it if we mentioned menopause. That put the advertisers off. So the ad department would say, oh, do you have to run that piece about menopause? Or can you just put it at the back where we put the, the tenor ads? Don't put it where it might upset Louis Vuitton or, or whatever. As if you would, but you know what I mean. So it was... You know, the whole thing was it was, uh, well, I interviewed the journalist Porna Bell um, last autumn and she was just coming up to her 40th birthday and, and she was saying, you know, I truly, until very recently, I truly thought that it was the end, mm-hmm. you know, because that's how it's, that's how society treats it. Like, you know, the fertile years are over, if you've done anything with them, I haven't. But if you did, you, your, you know, your usefulness is gone. Off you go over there. Away with the painting and the smock and the dogs and the knitting or whatever. And don't bother us anymore. And I think that a lot of young women think that as well. And I don't know that I actively thought it. But me and my gynaecologist said to me, you might find that the, there was some information there. You just didn't want to know about it. I think there is an element of that. And so what's happening now is that a bunch of women who are Gen X are going, it's happening to me, so it's relevant, so it's very selfish on the one hand. But on the other, we're also a generation of women who, you know, did work full-time, you know, have children or not have children, but are not... I suppose my mum and many other... Sorry, mum. And many other women I've spoken to said their mums said... We just had to put up with it. And I think this generation of women and certainly subsequent generations of women don't just have to put up with it. Or if they're told to, they won't just put up with it. And of course, you're joking about Tenna there, but we saw just last week Tenna won a massive advertising award for their campaign around the menopause. And it made me think of your book in the sense that it says that when you come out the other side of it, you're more yourself than you've ever been. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the book is divided into the shit and the shift. And is it as binary as that? Did you just, you woke up one morning feeling terrible and then you woke up one morning and you were through it? Or what is that process? <laughs> no, I mean, I did what, I mean, it was almost that binary to start with um, in that I did feel like I lost myself very quickly. And I didn't know what was happening. The kind of in, the kind of getting yourself back was not was not quick. I mean, um, I chose to take HRT. Um, that made a big difference for me. I tried three different sorts before I found the one that did make a big difference for me. Um, I also had. We were talking about this earlier. I also had a couple of years worth of therapy, and one of the things that. I found when I was interviewing women for the book and subsequently for the podcast is that it does seem to be something about menopause and I don't know the science I don't know if it's about estrogen I, I don't know what it is that makes women kind of mid-ish 40s to mid-ish 50s put a grenade under their lives or at least some put grenades into their lives. Very many told me that they'd left their husbands or wanted to leave their husbands or wished they could leave their husbands or were about to leave their husbands. A very, very shockingly large number. Um, but I think that for me, there were things that had happened in my teenage years that I had just like shoved over there and just, you know, as long as I don't look at it, I don't have to deal with it. And I reached a point where I couldn't just pretend that it wasn't there anymore. And somebody said to me before interviewing me about this, was it wouldn't or couldn't? And I don't know, actually, but it felt like couldn't. And that comes up again and again and again in interviews that women reach their mid, mid-ish 40s and things that have either not troubled them or they've ignored or whatever it was, have to be dealt with. So... I think that all of those things combine to make me a very different person in my 50s, but it's something that I hear almost from every woman that I speak to who is through it. And, you know, there are also... A woman contacted me yesterday and told me about something that's happened in her childhood and that she, it hadn't bothered her, it's just starting to bother her now. And I just, you know, I get those messages every week every week and I don't know the science behind that I don't know if it's science I don't know if it's that you reach a stage in your life where you just think I can't do the next 30 years the way I've done the last 30 years it could be that you've actually got a tiny bit of breathing space depending if you had kids when you had them could be all of those things but it's I think what I was trying I mean, firstly, splitting the the shit and the shift I, did, I didn't want it to be as just all this bad stuff I didn't want to be, actually, there are loads of really good things that come out of it. It's a bridge, not an abyss, if you like. <laughs> but also, um, and now, <laughs> brain fog. Um, <laughs> I've just lost my pride and say, I'm going to love this. Sorry. <laughs> All right, we'll come back to it. <laughs> it might come back to me in a minute. Sorry. <laughs> And one of the other things that um, is in the book, and, and you eventually come to find it as a positive, but that a lot of the people you spoke to felt it as a real negative, is the idea of invisibility. So if you get to a certain age as a woman and you don an invisibility cloak and the world just ceases to notice you. And 
It sounds as though you went on quite an interesting journey with that, but you said that it seems to depend on how much women were used to sort of being noticed in the first place. How big a, a shift was that for a lot of the women that you spoke to? Well, it really it did depend a lot on whether you had been a head turner. And the number of people who use that phrase, and I've just uh, interviewed the <coughs> blogger Natalie Lee, um, Star Me Sunday, and she actually said that she really, she's in her early 40s now, and she said she really misses it. Whereas I don't think I ever really had it. You know, I was never, I was always a bit ginger and a bit frackly and a bit, you know, ginger. So you kind of, I think I was probably 20-ish when I realised that my hair was going to win, so I just had to play to my strengths. But so I never was one of those people who, you know, like in the movies when you walk in a room and the conversation stops because people are so stunning. There are women who look like that and I think they miss it. But for me, it wasn't really my currency. I think the invisibility that affected me the most was actually more young women dismissing me Mm -hmm. and I found that I was kind of used to men not listening to me you know I'd worked in female businesses that were staffed by women and run by men most of my career Um, you know I was used to all those microaggressions that a lot of women of my generation and older have put up with your generation a bit more ballsy um, at the time and good for that but it was when young women started you know and I mean the women who Maybe I just wasn't a great boss. That's possible too. But certainly women in their 20s and early 30s were just a bit dismissive because you're kind of a bit old and what do you know? And that was a real shock. There was a woman I spoke to for the book who um, worked at the BBC. And she described, in fact, Kristen Scott Thomas has said this too um, in an interview, like literally having doors shut in her face as she's going into a cafe. And it's like, literally, they can't see you. It's like, I'm here, I'm not tiny, I'm, and it's like, it's, it's crazy, and it is in public rather than the people mm. who know you and love you. But I think when you, A, you decide whether or not you're going to put up with it, um, and one of the women I spoke to for the book said, um, which is like, invisible to whom? And I think that's really important, because, you know, visibility is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And I really subscribe to the Grace and Frankie quote, which I actually use as my hashtag on Instagram, which is if they can't see us, they can't stop us. And I, I you know, I think that's really important. So I actually, where I, I love where I am now. And um, my favourite thing, and this is not like a visibility thing, but the other day I was stopped in the street by a 28 year old boy and I was thinking, man. I was thinking, oh, I've still got it. Or he's going to see if I've got any money for parking. It's going to be on too. And he's like, where did you get your trainers? I was like, oh, my God. That's the kind of visibility that I want. He didn't fancy me. He didn't want my cash for the meter. He wanted my trainers. You talked about HRT having helped you turn that corner. And, of course... We're seeing a huge amount in the press at the moment about HRT shortages, lack of supply, and it struck me you might have something to say about the government's response when I read it this week that was basically blaming the fact that 
more women are asking for HRT now. How dare you? <laughs> it felt slightly like another version of gaslighting by government, if I'm honest. But they said that um, there are more women asking for HRT, and that's why we have a shortage. And of course, there's half a million HRT prescriptions written in 12 million women. Uh, the age group of menopause so it's not as though every woman has gone and knocked down their GP's door demanding it but how do you feel about that whole scenario and the fact that it's almost like responsibility is being passed back to us strange that yeah I mean I think there's been so much going on around HRT I mean first of all when it was introduced in America, it was all about keep your womanly wiles, keep your husband happy, you know, all of that. So obviously there was a feminist backlash against Lash. And if you, if you Google any of the ads that were used for selling HRT, it's absolute shocker, except it isn't because it was the 50s. Um, so there was the feminist backlash against it. There was the kind of we hate pharmaceutical companies, but also the way that, and I don't want to generalise, and I am, you know, I absolutely am not just seeing the NHS or GPs. I think they do an amazing job and they work really hard. However, they are really, really informed about menopause. They are not trained about menopause. I've spoken to countless GPs who will happily say, I know nothing about menopause. Um, I did an event up when the book came out in Hardback where a woman came up to me and said, I'm a nurse. My husband is a doctor, and when I went into menopause, neither of us knew, into perimenopause, neither of us knew what to do. So it's not part of the medical curriculum, if you like, unless you're a specialist. Nurses learn on the job, doctors don't learn at all. And yet doctors, well, they do, you know what I mean, though. I mean, yeah, you're right. This is between us, friends. But, the, you know, the way that a lot of doctors, and I have friends who are doctors and they're very nice, but the way a lot of doctors treat a lot of women is that they dismiss, you know, particularly women's pain. So, um, you know, I have to say I was very lucky in that I had had a lot of gynecological problems before um, and I didn't, so I didn't even take my symptoms to the GP because after years of bleeding buckets of blood I finally found a gynaecologist who had um, helped me and I had polyps and adenomyosis and fibroids and god knows what else. I was not just anemic because I was vegetarian as the <laughs> GP had told me. Um, so I just went to her and I was in the fortunate position of being able to pay. Um, that's not good enough. You know, and so for many of the women I spoke to, many of them had found themselves pushed into that situation where they had to choose, like it's a luxury, like decent medical care and getting yourself back so that you can run your home or your workplace or just have your life is a privilege and you have to choose, you have to choose that as a luxury. So many women had that experience. Um, I want to say it was male GPs, a lot of it wasn't, a lot of it was younger women. One woman I spoke to was basically told, well, that's just life, you know. Um, Marion Keyes came on the shift, she'd been on twice, the first time she came on, she told me about her doctor who 
is very nice, GP, but didn't want to put her in it in the first place because didn't approve of HRT, and then said she could only stay on it for a year. And you know, that's a woman who knows her stuff and is not afraid to speak out. So I think all of that was going on. And so what, when we were hearing how bad HRT was for us, based on a very, very outdated cancer study that was misreported in the start and the beginning and has been discredited, what we weren't hearing was like less than 10% of women were taking HRT in the UK, and I think it's similar in the States. So what's happened is that two years ago, the conversation, not just about menopause and HRT, but also about women's health. So Caroline Criado Perez's book about the way women are treated in, mainly in the health system. You know, that exploded and has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. You know, so people started to talk about menopause, women started to talk about HRT. There were a bunch of amazing doctors who'd been doing great work in that space for a long time. So Diana Dansbrink, who is amazing, and I think doesn't get the credit that she deserves for the work that she's done. Uh, Dr. Louise Newsom, who is very, very vocal on um, HRT. Um, and then in the States, Dr. Jen Gunter, who very gobby about absolutely everything, but is very good, very, very good on menopause and is very much pro-choice as opposed to pro-HRT. And that's where I land, is kind of, I just want you to have the information so you can make the decision for yourself. Not some bloke or young woman who's your doctor making the decision for you. Not some bloke in government who sets the budgets. Um, and another important thing to say about HRT is I went private. It took three different sorts before I found the one that suited me. They will, I mean, at the moment there's a shortage. They will give you the one that's cheapest. That's where you start. If it doesn't work for you, go back. Go back and insist on trying something else because they, whatever it is, whether it's blood pressure, arthritis, birth control, they always start with the cheapest because they have to, because they've got hideous budgets. So don't accept it. But in terms of the shortage, it's to do, it's to do with women's health being sidelined. It's to do with them not paying any attention, thinking we'd go away and shut up, which we are not going to do and it's only going to get louder. It's to do with Brexit because um, I could be wrong, so don't quote me. You just need to check in. I believe that estrogen is manufactured in Germany, so it's not getting here. And that this applies to cars, motorbikes, everything. A lot of medications which come from the Far East are going, instead of coming to the EU and we're getting our chunk, they are, I mean, this isn't a political thing, I don't even think about Brexit. Things that are being delivered from the Far East are being delivered to Europe first and not second, so we're not getting them. So all of those things combined are resulted literally in women swapping HRT in car parts off the M6. That is a really, really bad idea because you might be on something different and you might need something different. But I just think it's symptomatic of the whole way that women are ignored by, you know, and older women are ignored even more and women of colour are ignored even more than that. You know, so it's, I have a solution, short of who's with me getting a boat.
I was about to say that the solution's arriving on a white horse shortly in the form of the HRT czar, right? But I was going to ask, you know, if we make you the HRT czar, what are you doing tomorrow? What's the most urgent change that we need? Um, Well, we can't make the most urgent change we need because that decision was made and we're stuck with it. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's a supply thing. They've got a supply chain issue and what we haven't got still is trade agreements. We still don't have trade agreements. So we need a trade agreement to get estrogen from Germany to here. And there needs to be prioritised. I mean, it's not being prioritised. Where is Viagra manufactured? (laughs) Strangely, it's being prioritised. And also, you know, can be picked up over the counter for 3 99 You know, and that's the thing. I mean, I must say, if you live in Scotland, you can get your HRC free. Mm-hmm. And I know that the British government has issued, has changed the law, but that's not coming into effect. They've delayed it again. And if you have to get it privately in the UK, you could be paying 60 quid for three months. And that is what I was paying. It was worth every penny, but it's not okay. And what the British government had said was that it, that change that was going to make it become free has been delayed, but it's okay because the GPs in the interim as a solution are allowed to prescribe a year's worth at once so you only pay one prescription charge. But on the flip side of it, the GPs are being advised not to prescribe yeah, a year's yeah. worth because there are shortages. Yeah, so, I mean, I think myself lucky that mine comes in packs of three. Yeah. So they can't prescribe me one month at a time because they don't want to split the box. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but if you're, if you're using estrogel or patches and they last you a month, 28 days, not even a month. So you have to, you know, keep going back. And then, I mean, I've never been to a pharmacy and been able to walk away with my HRT. They always have to order it in. So I don't think they even keep it locally. I think they keep it at head office and then send it out. But it's simply not being prioritised. They're not prioritising HRT, and that's why it's that it is. Because it's still, they're talking about the huge demand, the huge numbers. It's probably still only doubled. Yeah. Which would still make it only less than 20% of perimenopausal women asking for it. So it's tiny numbers. A lot of the conversation around menopause at the moment as well is about the the roadblock that it's putting to kind of employment equality, the, the brain drain out of employment from women when they hit that age where they should be hitting their stride. And we've got all of these men at the top who do hit their stride at that age and are seen as being at their peak professionally, whereas women are just dropping like flies. I mean, when you look back now at how it affected you work-wise and the way that you were received dealing with VCs and men of the same age, um, how, how far off do you think we are from actually making real progress? Because there's progress being made in the conversation, but it feels as though action to catch up to the conversation is still somewhat lacking. Well, I think we're a long way off making this so progress, but it started... And there are, um, you know, there are people doing a lot of work, such as Alex Mann at Channel 4, a um, woman I know called Melissa Robertson, who is CEO of an ad agency called Dark Horses, which is um, actually has a lot of work, very many men work for it, and it's a sports agency, and it's, she's the only senior woman there. And she basically sat down and wrote a menopause policy, which she has made open source. 
And there are loads of people doing that. I think if you work in a big company, I mean, I've done talks for people like Dale Jones and, um, you know, lots of banks and those kind of companies are kind of starting to get with the programme. I think as ever, it will be small businesses that will be lagging behind and very many people work for small businesses. I mean, you kind of can't even start on trying to start a business on your own in your 40s because that's a whole other series of problems and investors don't like investing in women. They certainly don't like investing in older women. You know, that's, it's almost, that's almost another 45 minutes and we, we probably don't want to talk about that. But I think, you know, there are a lot of resources coming. Because VCs like making money, they are starting to understand that this is a market and this is a place they can make money. And so I know several upcoming businesses um, in the menopause tech space who are working to make information easier to get, prescribing better, and they are very much targeting HR departments because that's they don't think that women should have to pay for that resource. So there's something which is in development now called Adora Health, um, and that is going to be, you know, that is sold to eight memberships, basically sold to HR departments, so that you get the access to the information, um, you get telehealth, you get prescriptions to your door all of that kind of stuff. So it's a really, really good resource. Um, and it's all funded by, you know, big employers. So Mark Spencer's are looking at it, Zyat Coker's the election for looking at it. So there's a lot happening, but I still feel a bit cynical. I still feel a bit like I will believe it when I see it. And it's not just, we all know it's not just us. It's when we can talk to each other till the cows come home, but if you've got a male boss, or, you know, the men in your workplace and the senior men who are used to having it all their own way and getting to 50 and having gravitas, where women are used to getting 50 and science suddenly finding they're too expensive. I mean, hello. Experience is only valuable if it's male. That's, you know, that's dark ages stuff. But I talk to women every day who hear that, who that said to them. So it's got to be embraced at every level and by men and women. And I think it's like... It's like all those things, if men treat it as a women problem, then you can, you can only go so far. And it was quite interesting when I was recording the audiobook of The Shift down in Leith, the guy who, uh, it, was, it was a guy producing it, he was probably a couple of years older than me, and I just thought, oh God, this, you know, I immediately thought, this poor guy is sitting here listening to me talking about, you know, vaginal atrophy and going sort of for, for, you know, 72 hours. And afterwards, he said to me, I honestly think that if I'd had this book five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced. I think the door is, the door is creaking open, but it's, you know, maybe they need to, like, make it black and orange. And, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and then they'll a dog or a bull or something. On yeah, the pull it in the bullshit <laughs> or something. We could talk all night, but I'm afraid we are out of time. But Sam is going to be signing books downstairs in the foyer at the end. And also, where can people find you? Oh, it's my, I've got to plug. I mentioned the podcast, which is The Shift with Sam Baker, where you can hear women over 40 talking about their lives, their work, their health. Um, it was the first place uh, that Nicola Sturgeon actually talked about menopause, which was my big coup of the year. Um, I'm on... 
uh, Twitter as Sam Baker and Instagram as at the other Sam Baker. And I have just started a membership of the shift, which has a weekly newsletter and a community and stuff. So if you want someone to talk to you about it, come and talk to me, frankly. <laughs> I'd very highly recommend it. Yeah, so you can find the links for that on my Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>